was Aida Sona, a singer from the Moso ethnic group in Yunnan province, China. They live along the shores of Lugu Lake. They make a wicked grain alcohol called Sulima. They keep their unwritten language alive through these incredible songs. The woman who recorded this is Christina Ayele Tejosa, a former freelance journalist who is starting a brand new job at the New York Times today and who went to China on a fellowship from the Kim Vault Memorial Foundation. This thing that freelance foreign correspondents do, travel deep into the cut somewhere with little more than a microphone and an open mind, may be an endangered art form. It is certainly on full stop at the moment. But this episode, I want to celebrate the life and work of one of the best of her generation to do this thing, Imval, whose foundation funded Christina's reporting on the Moso people nearly three years after Kim's death. Now, if you've heard the name Kim Vall, it may well be because of how she died, which became the subject of a tabloid frenzy, particularly in Northern Europe. We are not going to talk about that in this episode. Violence leaves an uninvited weight on the name of the person killed, and those who were closest to Kim are doing everything they can to lift that stone so she can finally be seen for who she really was, a natural empath, a fearless traveler, a loyal friend, a hell of a journalist. Her parents, Ingrid and Joachim Wall, have a new book out about her life and work called A Silenced Voice. They are both journalists, as is Kim's brother Tom, and the book is a celebration not just of Kim, but also of this profession that we all love. This episode, I'm going to talk to Ingrid and to Christina Ayala de Josa, and also to Kim's close friend and reporting partner, Katerina Clarici. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, The World on Lockdown. Now here is Ingrid Ball, on the line from Trelleborg, Sweden. Let's start with that. How did you guys get into the news business? We met when I was 16 and Jocke was 19. Uh, I was about to begin in high school and he has just finished his fourth year in, in technical uh, high school and uh, during the summer months he uh, he worked double at the local newspaper uh, during daytime he take the, the photos and during the night he was printing the the paper as well those were the days in 1972 and uh, I was uh, looking into maybe going into journalism when I grow old, and but uh, it it all began with uh, 
Jockey was twice every week there were new movies at the the local cinemas in Trelleborg and uh, you could go for free if you write a small review uh, in the local paper and he has done that for some time but uh, he he realized that uh, I was the one who could write them down easier so he gave me that uh, assignment and uh, yeah and th that was the beginning and then it has yeah, the years has passed by and we have had different uh, positions in, in the media business. So it started with cinema reviews to have a, an excuse and an opportunity to go watch For movies. free, yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that was the most important, it was for free. We didn't have much money at that time, so it was, it was a good way to, to, to see the movies for free. And it, it has blossomed into the multi-generational Vol journalism exactly. family. We uh, I, we have a lot of memories. We went to Australia. We went to to US four times before she even go to to Stockholm for the first time. And I remember when we went to uh, we, we went to Mexico. And I think she was about what could she be three or four years old. <clears throat> and her brother Tom was one and a half years uh, younger. So we we grabbed a local bus and went to uh, to the border to to the states. And uh, the customers thought you were very, very strange. And they thought, of course, that we were smuggling narcotics or something like that. And uh, But we, we did arrive to, to the other side of the border, couldn't find a car hire, so we had to grab, grab a Greyhound bus and go to San Diego, arrive in the middle of the night. And and when we the evening when we were going back to, to Scandinavia, it was the night when uh, Desert Chill had become Desert Storm. So uh, and so everyone at the airport was really on the, their toes, and uh, to to protect, <laughs> I don't know who, but they they took the the kids uh, the the the. the play animals and stuck needles through them and uh, I know Kim she was absolutely she was so angry that they uh, uh, put a needle in her mini mouse that was <laughs> yeah that is so crazy I I do not recall that that era of security theater of sticking pins into children's yeah. uh, plush dolls before their eyes my goodness <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, I, it, it was something that was a, a current through Kim's work, I think, was this sort of uh, righteous indignation at mm -hmm. power. Exactly. <laughs> and, and abuses of power. Maybe it started right there in the uh, American uh, airport security line as yes. they're stabbing or making a, a voodoo doll out of her mini LAX. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> LAX. I mean, LAX is a great place to, to sort of... Uh, to first hold and, and nurture a deep grudge against the security <laughs> yes. apparatus. Uh, before I forget, I think there was something you had mentioned about this book report that she had done from Australia. She was, uh, she was seven years old and he, she was in her first grade in school. So, but she had learned to, to read and write even before she started school on her own because she 
he's always thought that we the, the bedtime stories were too few and too short so she learned to to read herself just to be able to read more stories that's amazing she was not satisfied with the quantity so she she seized the means of production and just started to make her own stories all right so she's seven years old you guys took it was a long trip to australia we went there for for a month, and we uh, we flew to uh, to Cairns in the the northern part of uh, Great Barrier Reef, and uh, we had a car, and then we uh, hiked all the way down to Sydney, and we were staying in uh, different camping grounds and so on, and it was an adventure. And at that time, Tom was six and Kim was seven, and it was a a great uh, great journey. I I feel like the detail that will stick with me from that story is the fact that you took a month-long trip during the school year to Australia. Why not? <laughs> this is not a parenting podcast, but I find myself constantly and I, you know, I felt this since I first met you guys. I I find myself very kind of amazed and impressed by the kind of parents that you seem to have been for Kim. Uh and it explains who she became, I think, in such perfect synchronicity. <laughs> Maybe that was, uh, we didn't want to stop traveling because we uh, we uh, became parents. So that's why the, the, the kids had to come with us and yeah, no problem. So. You are about to become grandparents, yes. is that, is that yes. correct? Yes, next month when we know it's a little boy and we are so excited. And of, co- of course uh, the, the mother-to-be is a journalist, of course. My goodness. So have you been writing little notes about how to how to raise uh, sort of rambunctious independent <laughs> journalists or do you feel like Tom has has it internalized? I think he uh, he can manage because he's got the, the, the same upbringing as Kim with a, a lot of newspapers uh, at home and uh, uh, always a lot of discussions about uh, journalism and uh, and world matters and so on. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's let's you and I set a date, uh, you know, 27 years from now <laughs> to follow the career of, of uh, your yes. grandchild <laughs> and see how he goes through uh, through this yeah. business we're in. My final question, I guess, going back to the book, what do you hope that people will know about Kim having read this book? I mean, what should the world know about her? We want the world to uh, to know Kim as the... Uh, curious and brilliant journalist, uh, daughter, fiance, uh, friend that she she was, and not the, the victim that she became. Because there has been there's been writing about uh, one hundred thousand articles about this uh, terrible uh, tragedy, but uh, Kim isn't uh, in those stories. It's she's just, yeah. She's just a name. So for us, it's very, very important that Kim will be remembered as uh, the human being she was. And uh, therefore, it's uh, for us very important with with the fund that uh, give us the opportunity to send out other young female journalists into uh, to the world to, to make the stories that Kim cannot do by herself. So uh, for for us, the, the fund give us some meaning. And that means also that people are talking about Kim and they are reading her, uh, her stuff and uh, then she, her, her legacy will, will live on for a long time.
Christina Ayala de Josa is one of a half dozen journalists who have been grantees of the Kim Vall Memorial Fund, run by the International Women's Media Foundation. Longtime friend of the show, Saba Imtiaz, was another grantee. The fund sent Christina to Yunnan province to report on the Moso music traditions for the BBC, a story that Kim would have loved to report herself. I was so happy to talk to Christina to see the program running so strong three years in. Trips like Christina's is the work. It is the life. It's just tremendously heartening to see an ongoing, joyful coda to the Kim Vall story. So where are you at uh, besides the like me in a in a actual literal closet? What <laughs> what city are you in? Um, I'm I'm from Long Island, so I actually live at home. Okay. Um, yeah, with my mom. Yeah. Wow. Well, that is you know the secret to this pandemic is if you want to see your mom, you got to live with your mom. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it's funny because there's so many people I know who are um, they're like. I'm moving back home. And I was like, I was here before the pandemic, so nowhere to go. <laughs> before it was cool, you were already uh, in a quarantine bubble with uh, your loved ones. Yeah, yeah. I, I miss my mom. I would like to be able to see her without killing her, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah. Good, it's good you're able to, uh, to spend this time that way. Um, where, I mean, I, I was trying to sort of track your reporting footsteps you... Uh, like Kim seem to be um, pretty itinerant. <laughs> you get around a lot. <laughs> so tell me, give me a little bit of a kind of a travel resume. Where where have you been at in the past couple of years? Ooh, um, so my I'm my mom is from Ghana. Um, I'm West African diaspora. Very proud of that. And so I would say like my my earliest travels were to to Ghana mm -hmm. and have always kind of tied back to the continent of Africa and Asia primarily um, and any diasporas within uh, the world. And so, um, but the biggest jump for me uh, was when I studied abroad in Japan for one year um, and it was through an exchange uh, okay. through George Washington University and Waseda University. Um, and it was one year, one year there. Um, and I loved it. And I, I studied Japanese culture and uh, history and language as a minor. Um, and uh, I did a homestay and just loved everything about it. From the friends I've made, who I'm still great friends with, yeah. uh, to getting really great and skilled in the language that propelled me to a lot of the different travels I'd be doing later on. I uh, did a Princeton in Asia fellowship for one year um, in Nepal and have just been kind of going back to Asia and um, Africa ever since. How did you get involved with the Kim Wall Foundation and, and the IWMF? So it it was actually at Atlas Obscura because I I was working on a story about Moso and doing a lot of research and and this is this is the ethnic group in China the non Han Chinese correct okay the, the Moso yes, the Moso um and the title of the article is Kingdom of Daughter Kingdom of Daughters in China draws tourists to its matrilineal society. And so this was published by the New York Times in 2015. Okay. 
And so I was reading and one of the places in the article uh, wrote about the Moso language. And so, I mean, I, I have it up here, but this is what the um, author wrote. Uh, experts say that the population of Moso in the Lugu Lake region, estimated to be about 40,000, is decreasing as more young people marry outside the group or move to larger cities for work. And without a written language, Moso culture is particularly vulnerable to disappearing. And that, to me, I, that was my aha moment. <laughs> it was like, That's, written you, hasn't been written down before. <laughs> yeah, right. That's such a uh, that's a very like specific and tactile example of one of the great hustle moves of freelancers. You know, it's just be like constantly scanning articles for that little that one little detail that is your your opening, right? Just yes. You're like boom, this needs this needs more. <laughs> Maybe I can give it right. Yeah, and also that was what Kim was so good at was not only finding the stories that were overlooked, not only in Western media, but also local media. I had been in contact with a Moso anthropologist and writer and filmmaker, Tammy Blumenfield, during my research. And I I just was like, hmm, how, how do I end up doing this story? I don't know, um, because I just... I can't contact anyone. No one is picking up. And I have people who speak Mandarin with me who are helping to translate and it's just not getting through. And I remember she had mentioned that, like, maybe you just have to go there one day. Yeah. And that point that stood in my head. I was like, okay, I have to go there someday if the story and the story I should probably expand on more is looking at, um, how many Moso musicians are using music as a way of keeping the language across generations huh. since it's not written down. Um, and so I had found that tidbit from her and from other people I had talked to. And so with that point in my head, like, I have to go there. Um, my friend Claire sent me a email and I, and this was probably December 2018, um, about the IWMF uh, Kim Wall Memorial Fund grant. And she was like, "You sh like here are some fellowships if you're looking for grant money. And I applied. And I got it. I was very surprised. I was like, this is just a whim. Like, maybe they won't be interested in this, like, story about the Moseau and karaoke and music <laughs> and... Who knows? I, I don't know if they'll take it. Um, and they did. This sounds like a, a, a just an absolute mint classic Kim Wall experience. So that makes sense. Yeah. And I remember um, her parents when we had the celebration for the grantees. Uh, and they showed me a picture of her at karaoke in China. <laughs> and they're like, when we saw your application, we're like, yes, yes. Like, this is definitely, this is something Kim would definitely have done. And you would have been friends. And I knew people who knew her because um, there's um, many great reporters from Atlas Obscura who went to Columbia J School. And mm -hmm. um, 
and just the legacy around her. And so it was it felt like an honor to hear that and to feel like I am helping to keep her legacy going and going throughout different types of stories and reporting. Yeah, it means a, a ton to them. And I think everybody who was so destroyed by what happened to her to just like have some vehicle for that life force to keep going. Uh, so what was that experience like? It is kind of interesting. I mean, you can't really compare these things, but was there something about going and reporting on this sort of oppressed minority group in China that you think gives you some sort of mental fodder for what's happening in this these states now as, you know, Ghanaian diaspora as a black American? It's interesting. And, and I know when talking to them, they didn't necessarily see themselves as oppressed um, and mostly just like they're very joyous and celebratory of being Moso. Um, And so I think there's our relation in the joy. Hmm. And I think about black joy a lot and how it's so unique to us as people and the way that we celebrate and the way that we we think about our different fates. I think there's that similarity that I felt, and especially since I went um, during the Mountain Goddess Festival, um, which was really great to see all these people from not only just China, but across the world. I had met people from Canada who would come um, from Australia. Um, and there is just so much celebration of themselves and their culture and so i i think about that a lot because that's that is what black joy has gotten a lot of my people across the world through so much and not to say that we and i and i want to make sure i'm like not speaking for everyone just my experience and and what i've learned is that it's it's such a pillar of the love and struggle. And so I, I think about that a lot in, in terms of the relations, the different relations and connections that um, were there and are there. That's nice. That's like Moso joy, <laughs> right? That's something you want to be able to bottle and kind of take with you as a, as, as a takeaway, especially from a reporting trip. Um, well, what's next for you? So I actually am going to be moving to a full-time role in the New York Times, which should be official in July 27th, which I'll be starting then, um, to, to work on their new um, opinion unit. My um, goodness. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, I'm really excited about it. Um, and so I am fast forward in my audio career, but still thinking about the little tugs and pulls that I've always been drawn to. Um, which is writing fiction, and I'm I love TV and TV writing and analyzing scripts, and so I'm really interested in taking a screenwriting class and seeing and building hobby and something that's fulfilling outside. I, of I did notice that you uh, you read Chanda Rhymes as prep to go to Nepal, so <laughs> like, yes, yes. Obviously, this is uh, <laughs> this has been on your mind for a while. Um, yes. 
Well, that is just uh, tremendous news. It's a hell of an organization with great benefits. <laughs> yes, so. I just I was reading that and I was like, wow, I've been a freelancer since 2016 and this is nice. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's really that's really fabulous. And you don't even have to commute yet. So, uh, well, it was such a pleasure talking to you and I look forward to seeing all the great things that you get up to. Thank you. Thank you so much. Journalist and filmmaker Katerina Clarici was a close friend of Kim's, who traveled and reported with her often for Roads and Kingdoms, for The Guardian, for others. As a side note, Katerina's partner, Alfredo Chiarapa, shot photos for our Italy book, Pasta Pane Vino, so we do talk a bit about that sweet cheese life in Italy, as well as about Kim Vall. Here's Katerina. Now you were you're from Milan, is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Is yeah. everything okay with your family, and they made it through that first punch? Yeah, they did. Uh, I was pretty worried, I must say. They're both. My parents are both sixty-five, so you know, it's yeah. getting interesting at it's that in age. It's like definitely sure. in the in the zone. But most importantly, they're both doctors, so it was pretty scary. Um, and now it's like, you know, they made it through their, you know, they finally like went to the seaside for a weekend last weekend and, you know, are starting to like really go back to a bit more of a normal life. But, um, it's just so weird not to, not to even know if we'll make it back before Christmas. I mean, yeah, it's and yeah. to have it not be the problem is not the Italian side. It's right here. <laughs> yeah. Right now it is actually. Yeah, because they, I don't, I think they would, I mean, I think they would let us in just because we're Italian nationals. So, you know, we're Italian citizens. So, I mean, I could be like, I could just ask to be repatriated, but it's a little extreme. Um, and also, you know, the minute I, I get there, I just don't know when I'll, I'll make it back here. So yeah. at the moment, work is here, honestly. And um, yeah, I just, I, I don't really think it would make much sense to should just be stuck there and Alfredo's from you know pretty much the opposite side of Italy um oh my god by the way did you ever actually meet the the mozzarella guys the cheese guys I did not I know although I yeah. I am I'm good friends with them on Instagram they're so okay. Vito I think is yeah. the uh the expressive one yeah oh my uh, god yeah the expressive <laughs> by all means yeah no i just thought of them because every time we go to alfredo's place we actually stop by and say hi to these guys and they're we do insane. oh my god we just got yeah. a note yesterday from some guy who was like uh you know had had read the book went to go see them in the spring and is now like hanging out with them a lot and he's just like these guys have changed my life like this book is amazing the cheese it's, brothers are <laughs> it's insane so, the last time we were there, we there was like this guy who flew from South Korea specifically because he was opening a mozzarella bar, the first one in Seoul, and he wanted to like, you know, learn from these guys. And then there was like this intern from like a farm outside of Sao Paulo who was like interning. 
I mean, I wouldn't be, be a mozzarella intern too. Oh honestly. man, yeah, I want to. I want to go the whole mozzarella. I want to start as a mozzarella intern, get offered like a low-paying entry-level mozzarella job, get Seriously. into mozzarella middle management, maybe uh, <laughs> you know, just have an entire life living in cheese. <laughs> Seriously, in that would literally that would be that would be all right by me. Um, all right, well, let's talk about your friend uh kim whose book is out now i think uh july 7th so i wanted to talk to you because of course in my mind you guys are very tightly connected you were a writing and reporting team um so let me just start when you think of kim like what is the first word that comes to your mind oh my god a word um only one word we're rationing in, in hard times and rationing i mean it sounds pretty banal but i would say enthusiasm honestly like All right. just i mean it could also have been i don't know justin bieber but that's two words <laughs> <laughs> not in german i'm sure <laughs> i don't know why i have this memory of her you know often listening to to Justin Bieber songs just you know for the fun of it and actually <laughs> you know in places like Haiti to to think I remember so many bus rides you know in incredible places and we would you know to get around we, we went to Haiti twice in November 2014 for only I think like over a week maybe 10 days and then for a month uh, after we got a grant uh, a, a reporting grant back in between July and, and August of 2015. And basically, we would, you know, always take basically whatever, you know, buses and transportations like people there took. So often it would take us, you know, eight hours to get to a place that was actually, you know, I don't know, 50 kilometers away. And she would, you know, put her headphones in and, and listen to these songs that would take her kind of out of, you know, out of the situation that we were in and and just make her think um you know about what what she wanted to write and and I'm talking about Justin Bieber specifically because um I remember this one episode where actually Bieber came to the rescue when it was it was one of the few times I guess that we weren't really kind of winning somebody over it was a potential uh, interviewee, uh, we were trying to show it was a piece for on on Voodoo that we did uh, for the Guardian, and basically one of the angles was that uh, you know, amongst other things, the uh, Voodoo um, community in Haiti was um, kind of really open and you know receptive and and also accepted everyone and and the small LGBTQ um, community of Haiti was actually. Uh, largely embraced by by the voodoo community hmm. um, and basically in order to show that we were uh, we had been uh, introduced to a let's call it a, a voodoo priest um, and who who was gay and but he was really you know kind of wary of of talking to us and you know which was also understandable because because of uh, you know the potential risks and also because honestly we were like again, two white girls who just like walked into his peristil, like his you know voodoo sort of temple, and you know he had no idea, uh, but he was wearing a Justin Bieber T-shirt. So the minute <laughs> that we walked in, he was like, oh, 
Justin Bieber, and they started talking about Justin Bieber. And so after like a few minutes of Justin Bieber talk,、uh, we had our interview. In in all my years of journalism, I've never been able to use Bieber as an icebreaker. <laughs> I'm, I'm jealous of Kim's ability to use that to soften up a source, <laughs> build、yeah. trust. It's insane, but it worked. It worked, and yeah, she did. She really did put、um, people at ease,、uh, despite again, you know, also being very aware. Of her privilege, going in, you know, working in places、uh, she worked in Haiti, in particular, out of all like the different, you know, places and situations where we were reported from, Kim, when whenever she entered a, a room, she basically looked like an alien, right? She had these like super, you know, kind of bright blonde reddish hair, always in this messy bun that was going everywhere. She had really,、um, actually, really, really. Mm, you know, pale skin, like super Scandinavian. So you know, even I could like pass for like you know whatever, a little more Latin with my Italian. But like honestly, yeah, she was just like completely out of context. But she also because she is and you know、uh, Ingrid actually Kim's mom、um, writes writes it well, you know, and often in in the book she was petite and just. I don't know, like cute. So she was really not like she she came across as non-threatening, even in you know the situations where the disparity was actually more evident. She had a way of、um, you know coming in and sitting next to people and just empathy. Empathy was really something that you know a quality that she had, and it just came. It really came, you know. Automatic、uh, to to Kim. One of the things that I, you know, you talk about the travel experience and hopping on buses. It always felt like you were building the plane as you were flying it. You know, on your reporting trips, is that accurate? Did she kind of show up in a place and just be like, "I think this is going to be great. Let's find out and and kind of build an itinerary around that." Or how did she travel? One thing about Kim was that she really did her research before. Like so, she she wasn't you know all over the place. What I liked about working with her is that you know we would get to it perhaps at the last minute. I mean, I definitely remember being here, like or in in a cafe in South Williamsburg where we both lived at the time, and being like, shit, like we're leaving in you know three weeks, two weeks, haven't booked anything. Oh my god, what are we doing? And also panicking because. I think, as you know, relatively not not super young women, but like women starting out in journalism, it would have been hard to place stories. You know, we would have,、mm-hmm. and it would have been even harder to then, you know, actually <laughs> finish paying the bills from those trips. So there were like layers of complications, and I think we were really aware of that. And we also, yeah, we basically we we just really wanted to do good work, so we didn't want to be. Unprepared,、um, so、right. I mean, you didn't want to be easily dismissed,、uh, yeah. As, as as particularly young women in the business. Well, yeah, I mean, you need to 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 prove that you know what you're doing, even though you're starting out, and the fact that you maybe, I mean, you you definitely have something to say, and you know, you're trying to 
really say something that is not the mainstream narrative and that maybe maybe you know maybe you end up writing a pitch that gets overlooked you know nine out of ten times because it's not the story that all the headlines are you know about and that everyone's running and so you definitely need to persevere Um, Mm -hmm. but basically the funny thing about the way Kim worked is that she was definitely always doing like 10 things at the same time so whether we were like preparing for a trip or on the trip she was you know making interviews for other (laughs) like other you know future trips or past or you know sort of scribbling notes from from other parts of the world even in Haiti um which was hilarious and then you know the work would go on and on and on I mean I specifically remember being like having dinner with her and you know, writing the captions and fighting about the captions that we were writing for the Instagram takeover that we did for Roads and Kingdoms because we did, you know. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, totally. To stress level. Uh, so, as... <laughs> I mean, you know, it's one of these things like it was, you know, argu- literally fighting about most things, but because we knew that out of th- those fights, you know, we would get it right. That is the process. Yes. Um, so yeah. But anyways, yeah, fighting. Um, but she, I have to say that she was prepared. But the beauty of it was also that you know she had a strong, definitely strong ideas, starting in and going into the story. But she was ready to be challenged. She was so ready for her ideas to be turned around by what she found on the ground. And you know, and this is something that I respected. I I think I'm absolutely the same perhaps uh I'm a little too ready for ideas to be turned around and I'm like ah (laughs) the idea wasn't good in the first place whereas she was actually she was a a bit more let's say confident that we were on the right track it's always such a balance of like you need to have an idea going in because that's how you get editors to send you someplace that's how you um you know build even enough sort of vague support for the reporting trip but the reason why you take the trip is to to be changed. What is something that you think you took from having worked with Kim that that you hope will be seen in the work that you continue to do over the next 10, 20, 50 years of, of doing this? Hmm. I don't know. It's silly because I, well, I haven't, you know, really given it, given it much thought. And I also had, you know, I, I must say that I've had some trouble writing and 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 also with journalism <laughs> in general uh in the past few years and I think Kim's death had um you know definitely had to do with it like I just you know started asking myself a few more questions about this industry you know in a way that I was do- wasn't doing uh before and maybe that's you know also just I mean, what kind of questions <sighs> you know, why, why are you, you know, are we doing um, certain stories and, you know, whether it's for really for the people that, you know, whose story you're trying to tell or if it's for you and for the next grant and for the next, or, you know, even sometimes is it as simple as, you know, doing it because you need to pay the rent, you need to survive. I think I would have tried to sort of produce a lot more, um, maybe just to to survive as a journalist like earlier on in my in my career and now I'm trying to stop and think about you know what sacrifices I sort of want to make for certain stories and and then make sure that you know these are 
sort of stories that really come from the heart and that I need to tell and then yeah just reprioritize them I don't know if I really answered your question I guess where I'm landing now is you know maybe even though I am a little more disillusioned maybe than before I had to go through a bit of a journey to figure out uh, if and how to go back to to do it and do it in the best way that I can possibly can I, I will say as a as a final thought one of the things that struck me as as unfair um, as we went through the memorial process and watching people who were close to her like you you know really describe who she was I don't think she as as uh, as many people I don't think she got to hear that enough while she was alive you know like how people really valued her work uh, you're touching upon my uh, crisis of faith as you described it earlier <laughs> no I think that was part of it it you know I did go through all of the phases um, and the part of part of the ro- roller coaster, I think, was that some recognitions came too late and it, and I was mad about it, you know, and I think what was really unfair uh, is that she was really like just starting not to bloom because she had started, but like, it, yeah, it, it took took some time, you know, for which is also part of the process and probably just a little bit harder maybe for for women uh in in you know this system um and and in this industry but in most industries uh absolutely yeah but yeah like she was really started starting to get the recognition she you know had really been deserving already for some time because i did mostly work with Kim in the phase of ah it's the you know 18th time that we're sending this pitch no one's gonna take it um and and you know the ideas were good maybe the the name wasn't so big yet but the ideas were still good but it also shows that you know you just kind of need to fight for it and maybe I mean I think for all of us that's also the beauty of it that you're earning uh each and every (laughs) publication (laughs) All right, let's keep doing it. Keep trying to remember uh, who she was and not how she died. Um, yeah, which is which is a fucking monumental battle, you know. I think primarily for her parents to to lead, but uh, but a, a worthy one. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's the long game, right? The tabloids had their had their moment with her, you know, and they had uh, and they they had a very strong argument that they made about this is how she. Uh, should be remembered but fortunately we have time on our side yeah. <laughs> we've got time and, and a thousand smaller you know platforms to to just keep uh keep trying to hammer home uh who that's she true. actually was so fuck them yeah. we're gonna win yeah. <laughs> oh yeah that's for sure uh and thank you for for doing this i think it's you know it's uh just really amazing to have people who she actually you know knew uh, to jump in and because yeah I mean I, I I do feel one of the best things has you know about sort of the aftermath has really been the community that her family you know her family and friends were able to build uh, around this and stick together and I mean her parents are like sort of a whole different topic of discussions I think that of discussion I think they're incredible I just even after interviewing them, I st- I mean, there's no way someone can imagine what they've been through. 
uh, and yeah, just have so much respect. And every little bit counts, I think, you know, in when it comes to, you know, to to just keeping her memory, the memory of the person she was and of her work intact and, and making her proud. Amen. Katarina, yeah. I, I'm here in the same city. I have no idea when we'll meet uh, again. <laughs> but we should have real for... drinks. Real drinks. Can you real imagine? drinks. They yeah. will happen sometime. <laughs> uh, give my love to Alfredo and, and take I care will. of yourself. Um, I, uh, I hope we can keep checking in. My trip to Milan is absolutely doa but at some yeah. point <laughs> i imagine a future in which we can all be living in cheese <laughs> <laughs> living in cheese in the south of italy that sounds like a dream honestly the trip from roads and kingdoms is hosted by me nathan thornburg theme music by dan the automator show artwork by adele rodriguez executive producers are me and matt goulding also of roads and kingdoms Special thanks to Elisa Liz Munoz of the IWMF and to Christina Ayele de Josa and the Moso Musicians for the music from the main stage of the Mountain Goddess Festival that we put in this episode. As a reminder, these episodes are now free and available on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Next episode is coming in two weeks, August 10th. With the ever faster and still very wobbly rotation of this planet these days, I do not know what destination the episode will be talking about. That said, it will be recorded in my closet once again. But even that closet is moving. We are moving across the East River to Queens, where even the white people are hella ethnic, and the Suvlaki and Halal carts battle it out on every corner. Cannot wait to dig in. All right. We will meet you there.